So we're still in James. We're going to be in chapter 5, um, and it's going to be starting at verse 13 this morning. So chapter 5, verse 13, reading through to the end. This is God's Word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. The earth bore its fruit. My brother, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. Let's just pray before Ali comes to speak. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this passage this morning. Lord, we thank you for the truth that is in it. That Lord, though we commit sin, Father, when we confess and repent, Lord, that you are merciful and just to forgive us. And God, we thank you for that reality here today. Lord, we also thank you that um, in this passage, it, it teaches that the prayer of the righteous will be heard and that, Lord, we are not righteous by our own doing or by any works, but what Jesus has accomplished for us. God, we thank you even in our brokenness and in our sin that Jesus bore that on the cross and that in your eyes, Lord, that we are declared righteous, that we are justified and we are no longer, when we're walking with Christ, no longer held under the penalty of sin. So, Father, I just pray this morning as Ali comes to speak, Father, that you would anoint him with your spirit. Father, that what he has prepared, Lord, um, will lift the name of Jesus high, that in this passage that we will see his glory and his goodness. And, Father, we pray for those among us and, and in our kids' spaces, Lord, who do not yet know Jesus as Savior. Father, that today that the Holy Spirit would do a work in hearts and minds. And, and Father, that you would be... Um, made known and, and a fresh revelation would be made to those in this room. And Father, we just pray too that we would be a church that remain on mission. Father, that we know our calling and that we're called to, to preach the good news of the gospel. Lord, that, that Jesus died in order that we would have life and have it abundantly. And I pray, Father, that we would not live self-centeredly, but Father, that we would give our lives in, in service to you, Lord. And and just help us to remember that as we approach summer and, and maybe as we um, head off or, or um, just enter a different um, season of life, Lord, that we would just be open and aware of opportunities just to speak the truth of Jesus and your word into the lives of those around us. So just pray for Ali now as he comes to speak, Father, that you would be with him and, and just use him this morning in order to, to teach us and to humble us and, and to, to glorify your son's name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Steph, uh, for that. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to church this morning, and welcome back to the final 
uh, passage in our series in James. Uh, I hope you found it as encouraging and as equipping and as challenging uh, as I have as we've gone through it over the last number of weeks. I think it's probably important at the outset to, to take a few minutes just to scan back over the book of James and uh, just to remind ourselves of some of the context that we bring uh, to uh, this closing passage today. And James is really a book about authenticity. It's about the external matching the internal. It's about faith that's lived out before the world around us. It's about the, what we believe of Jesus becoming real and active in our lives. And I wonder if you've ever been with someone who just 100% believes in something, 100% convinced of it, 100% faith in something. I wonder if you've ever watched the Liverpool match with Ben Graham. Uh, I had that privilege a few weeks ago, and uh, it was a privilege uh, to be in his home in the Champions League final uh, a few weeks back. And as I arrived to the house just a few minutes before the, uh, the game, at the gates there was these two massive Liverpool flags flying from his gates. As I got into the living room, there was this sea of red, uh, as all these people wearing red shirts supporting Liverpool on that night. Timmy was there in his, his Liverpool top, Ben was there in his retro 1980s Liverpool kit. They're all singing expectant about Liverpool uh, in this Champions League final. And Ben was confidently predicting at the outset and that this was going to be an easy victory for Liverpool. 3-0 by half-time, game over, and Liverpool would win. I don't want to tell you what the result was in that game, because I, I love these guys, and I don't want to unnecessarily cause upset for them. But you could see from their actions, you could see the faith, you could see the trust, you could see the belief that they had in their team. And though it was horribly, horribly misplaced you know, on that occasion, it was evidenced through their behavior, through their words, through their actions, what they believed in. And in this way, and similarly in this book, James is calling us to put our trust in much surer foundations and to live lives that reflect what we believe and who we are. James is calling us to a faith that works itself out practically. If you ask people what they love and what they like about the book of James, one of the things that often comes back is that it's so practical so much practical wisdom in the book of James. There's so much practical advice for Christian living, how we're to live our Christian lives. Ask Emily and she will tell you that I am great at giving practical advice and practical steps that she needs to take in any walk of life, in any given situation, whether she's asked for it or not, uh, she gets it. And she loves it when I do that. And maybe you have somebody in your house who is similar, who gives these nuggets of wisdom for how you're to live or how you're to fix a particular situation. We're bombarded with information as to how we can transform our lives, how we can uh, make changes in our lives, how we can fix things in our lives. Whether it's home improvement shows as to how we can transform our homes, how, it's, how to train our bodies properly to get fitter and stronger, how to be more successful in work, how to be a better parent. All this practical advice, practical wisdom to help us strive towards a goal and transform our lives. As we've been through the book of James, I want us to see that the practical wisdom that James provides doesn't echo in the same way that, uh, that the world thinks of making changes in our lives. It doesn't echo in the same way that the world asks us to better ourselves. James' practical wisdom starts with the transformation of our hearts by the grace of God touching our lives. And as we do, as we put our faith in Jesus, as we are forgiven of our sins, as we turn to him, God will transform our lives. James isn't calling us to fix ourselves up, isn't calling us to try that bit harder to look the way that we should. James is calling us to live a life of faith which evidences the transforming work of God within us 
and allowing that to shine out in our everyday humdrum lives. That our hearts will be transformed and flowing from that our lives will look different. What James has been saying to the churches here in this letter is that your works and your actions don't tally up with your faith. Who you say you are is not consistent with how you're living. Whose you say you are is not consistent with how you're living. In fact, what he said at one point during this, this letter is that faith without works is dead. And that's maybe even startling or concerning for us or frightening for us as we've heard that. Because we've listened to James talk over the last number of weeks addressing a number of ways in which people are living their lives. He's called us to, to count it joy in the midst of trial. He's, he's, he's called us not just to be hearers of the word, but also doers of it, to put it into practice. He's called us not to show partiality or favor to those who can offer us something in return, while we ignore those who can't. He's called us to extend mercy rather than judgment. He's called us to watch our mouths for cursing, for slander, for gossip. He's warned us about seeking false wisdom. He's He's warned us about going after worldly things and having worldly desires in our heart. Warned us about having boastful and prideful hearts. And we probably, to some extent each week, have felt the pangs of guilt or of conviction in these things. And if we have each week felt that pang of conviction, I don't want us to write off our faith just yet. But I want us to see that as a good thing because the message of James is not that we are perfect. But as we grow in maturity, as we grow in relationship with God, as we humble ourselves before God, as it says in chapter 4, as we ask for wisdom from God, as it says in chapter 1, that we will make steady progress towards looking like the image of Jesus. God revealing sin in our hearts is evidence of his ongoing sanctifying work within us that he will bring to completion. And the Christian life is about progress, not about perfection. So as we move to the end of James, I don't want us to think that Though we've been uh, maybe raising a silent hand to each of these ways that uh, James is calling people not to live, we don't write off our faith. We don't presume that our faith is not real. But as we're aware of these things, the gospel calls us to simply come before God, to lay these things before him, to confess those, repent, and ask God for help to turn from them. Scripture makes it clear throughout that our works do not save us. We're not saved by our own good works, but we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. James demonstrates through this book that just as we are dependent on God for our salvation, so we are also not left alone to our own devices when it comes to living out this life of faith. And we can only live this life of faith with the ongoing grace of God and the prompting of the Holy Spirit upon us. And in this finale, I think uh, James is seeking to underline to us that the life of faith has to be lived in dependence on God. We need help beyond ourselves, to live the life of faith that God is calling us to. And we've been given that. And in today's passage, I think it's significant that we spend our last week in James focused mainly on prayer. You see, we're, we're saved to our relationship with God, and, and, and prayer is central to that. And I think few practices strip us of our own dependence on ourselves like prayer does. Maybe that's why we struggle so much with prayer. Because prayer is the greatest acknowledgement that we are not in control but we are surrendered to God and we are dependent on him for all things. Prayer is us reminding ourselves of the character and the nature of God and falling and resting on that rather than plodding on with our own strength. 
In closing this call to prayer, James is underlining our dependence on him for the journey of faith. And folks, don't expect the works of your life to reflect Jesus if your faith is not rooted in him. Don't expect your life to, to reflect Jesus if, if you're not in communication with him, if you're not speaking to him, if you're not praying to him. We need to pray. And in this last section, James calls brothers and sisters to pray among a, a range of circumstances. From verse 13 on, prayer for those who are suffering, prayer and praise for those who are cheerful, prayer for those who are sick, prayer for those who are sinners. And I think in those four categories this morning, I don't think there's too many of us that are left out. I don't think too many of us don't fit in some of those categories this morning. Suffering, cheerful, sick, or sinning. What James is teaching us is that the life of faith is lived out in a life of prayer. I want us to note the circumstances which James calls us to pray in. Whatever our circumstances are, we are to pray. The message of James is simple. A life of faith prays. And we often compartmentalize our lives. Sometimes we we bring God into our lives from time to time, depending on what's going on in our life. But the life of faith is to live an ongoing, continuous, constant prayer and communication with God. Imagine a close relationship with someone, maybe your best friend, maybe your spouse, and maybe the only time you communicated with them was when the chips were down, when you were down in the dumps, when you were miserable, when things were going badly. And that was the only time you communicated with them. And when you were cheerful, and when you were happy, and when you were joyful, and you never spoke to them. And maybe some of you are thinking, that sounds about right uh, in our house. But it's not so. That shouldn't be the way things are. A healthy relationship is a communication ongoing despite the circumstances. And it's the same with God. James says that God is present in all of our circumstances. And this relationship shouldn't be just put away in the drawer for when we need him, but in every aspect of our life we're to pray. Faith prays through all circumstances because faith depends on God in all circumstances. I want to look at the four instructions that James gives towards prayer in a little more depth. And we start in verse 13, where it says, first of all, is anyone among you suffering? Pray. James has already spoken about the expectation that in the Christian life, for the believer, there will be suffering. He's spoken to us about having joy in the trials, about having patience in suffering. And within the church body, there will be those who are suffering. And this morning in Cornerstone, there are those among us who are suffering. Maybe you're suffering physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, but it will be the reality for us all that there will be some among us suffering this morning. And the reminder in this is that it's important for us to know that though things are difficult, though we're suffering, God has not abandoned you. Suffering is part of the Christian life, and the existence of suffering in your life is not an indicator of the absence of God, but it's an invitation, it's an opportunity for us to pray and to call on him. James' response appears quite sharp here. It says, uh, anybody that's suffering, pray. I don't want us to think of this as some sort of glib or or cliched response. Because all James is saying here is, who else when we're suffering can we go to but to the one who is sovereign and reigning and knows you and loves you and hears you? I know often prayer can be the last place that that I go to uh, when I'm struggling. And that shouldn't be the case, but it's true. So quickly, I can go to, to other things, grumbling, complaining, worrying, trying to fix the situation myself. 
But when we're struggling, it's an opportunity to come to our Father in heaven and talk to him, to seek him. And not necessarily for everything to be resolved, not necessarily for us just to be helicoptered out of the situation, but maybe just for his presence, his strength, and his grace in it. God wants us to run to him in the struggle, not from him. He wants us to find strength and rest and comfort in him when we're struggling. And he calls us to pray. Now, that's where you are this morning. If, if you're struggling in any way, I just echo the, the words of James and, and say, pray. Bring it to your Father in heaven with faith in his good character, that he is good, that he is for you, that he loves you, that he hears you. And this is what faith looks like in a struggle. We're to pray. Secondly, is anyone cheerful, sing praises. And there will be some among us here this morning who are cheerful. Believe it or believe it not. Things have been going well. Maybe you feel that there's much to be thankful for, much to be cheerful about. Maybe God has just granted you a special cheer or joy. And, and you know what? It's okay to be cheerful. I want you to know this morning that it's okay to be in a good place. That's okay. I know sometimes we shy away from that, but, but some of you this morning may actually be cheerful. Imagine that. Maybe you're just really good at hiding it, I don't know, but when we're cheerful, what James is saying is, it's okay to be cheerful, it's good to be cheerful, and when we are cheerful, when things are good, when we're in a good place, James is saying, remember God in this. Sing praises to him. Give glory to him, pray and thank him, and let our praises be known. When we're thankful, when we're cheerful, our cheerful praises are infectious, and the body of Christ needs to hear the encouragement of the cheer of those who are cheerful. We're all blessed in Christ in every spiritual gift, and we're blessed in Jesus. But sometimes we receive particular blessings or graces in our lives in a specific way that we're just really thankful for, that we're really cheerful in. I remember years ago, I was in, in Kenya with Tear Fund for about two months. Um, and before I went, I had to raise money to go, and the generosity of people had, had raised £850 extra than I needed. So I was wondering what to do with this money. And I prayed, and I felt God said, no, just hold on to it. Don't give it to Tear Fund just yet. I'm going to show you what to give it to when you get over to Kenya. So about five or six weeks in, uh, we were in Nairobi, and the whole team of 12 of us were due to travel uh, the next day to Samburu, which is about nine hours away in a minibus. And the, I made the schoolboy error of brushing my teeth that night in the tap water in the place that we're staying. And really quickly that night, I got really, really sick. And long story short is, at 8 o'clock the next morning, whenever we was due to go for this week-long trip, nine hours in the minibus uh, to this other place to, to, to minister in the Maasai community in Samburu, I was in no shape to be getting on a minibus. And neither did anybody else in the team, the other 12 members of the team. Nobody wanted me on the minibus with them for nine hours, I can tell you. So I ended up having to stay behind in Nairobi for the week. One of the other guys, Sam, stayed with me. And about two or three days later, I was feeling much better. And we went to an early morning prayer meeting with the partner organization that we were working with. And it was just such a joyous experience to be there, just to be there in the presence of God with these brothers and sisters praying thanking God, cheerful, glad, worshipping, calling out to God for needs as well. And it was such, uh, just amazing to be there. And, and near the end, Solomon, the boss of this uh, organization that we were working with, 
Solomon happened to mention this important project that they were about to start two weeks from then. That they planned, it was a really significant project, and they needed 85,000 Kenyan shillings. They, they planned this in faith, they had no money for it. They were two weeks away from it, and they had no money. And they needed 85,000 Kenyan shillings, which at the time, before we guess it, matches up completely the 850 pound that I had had, uh, that I had raised extra and over what I needed. So being the reserved Irish guy I was, I didn't want to interrupt things just then. So I waited at the end of the meeting, and uh, went over to Solomon as people were filing out to go to their offices and go to work. And uh, I went over and explained to Solomon the whole thing about the money and that I felt God was leading me to give it to him for this project. And I can tell you, Solomon, big Solomon, just went off. He just like, he started to dance, he started to sing, he started to dance with me, which was a real sight to behold as well. And what he did is he called everybody back in. He called all the people that were going out to their offices all back in. He told them what God had done. And we began to sing, we began to praise, we began to give thanks to God for his provision. And we prayed again for about another hour after this, just worshiping and giving thanks. And this cheerfulness, this gladness of heart, this joy in what God had done was just really infectious. I still remember vividly being there and seeing this. And sometimes in the good, in the when things are going well, and when the good thing happens, we can forget God in it. But what James is saying is, remember the one, when you're cheerful, when you're glad, when you have joy, remember the one who provided it, who brought it to you. Sometimes we can forget God in it, but James says, remember the one who is sovereign over all your life. And when you have cheer in your heart, express it to God, and express it to others. And this is what faith looks like in the cheerfulness, in the gladness. Actually, James goes on to say, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And this is what I want to spend a few minutes on because there's some really important stuff in this for us to understand. When there is sickness, it is right for us to pray. We should pray when there is someone sick among us. We should absolutely pray. There's, there's varying ways in which we can pray and do pray for those who are sick. And in this instruction, James suggests that the one who is sick calls the elders. What he's saying here is that uh, there's something instigated in the person who is sick, something instigated in their faith, that they reach out and ask for prayer. Faith is engaged by seeking prayer. And when we're sick, we should ask for prayer as an act of faith. And this situation that James describes shouldn't necessarily be taken as a, a prescriptive way in which everybody, anybody that's sick should necessarily pray and ask for prayer in this way. So every time there's a, a sniffle in the church, don't necessarily come calling John or Marcus or myself to come and pray with you and anoint you with oil. Uh, it's not necessarily what it's saying. Of course, we as elders are, are, are happy and glad and always glad to have the opportunity to pray with you. And we have done in the past, and we will do again. But there's something maybe more specific about the circumstances of this particular prayer. Uh, possibly some commentators say that uh, the sick one is very weak, who can't get out to, to church gathering to be with the other members of the church. So they call the elders as those who are over them and shepherding them to come and pray with them. Also, some of the context indicates that maybe in this case there's some element of, of sin involved connected to the sickness. And, and James certainly in this passage indicates that sickness can, on some high stress, only on some occasions, be a consequence of sin. 
The whole book is about spiritual double-mindedness and about wavering in faith. So maybe this provides some context for the instruction to call the elders in this particular matter. I want to, it throws up a couple of questions for us that maybe just for us to ask. First, first of all, why call the elders? Do the elders have some sort of special healing power that the rest of the church don't? And the, the, the short answer to that is no. No, we don't. Marcus or John or I do not have any special healing powers beyond what is available to you in the Holy Spirit. We don't. We see a few verses along in, in, this, in this chapter that it's the job of all of the church to pray for one another. It's not solely for the elders, but the elders have is not a special healing power, but we have a special responsibility and a special calling to pray over and to pray for the church. What about the oil? Do we, do we need to use oil to see healing? Oil is actually only mentioned one other time in the New Testament in the context of healing. There's plenty of evidences aside of that of healing elsewhere where oil is not used. Different uh, views on what this oil is, uh, is about and what, what the purpose of it is. Some in the Roman Catholic tradition use this as a, a sacramental ritual such as the, the last rites, the anointing of oil. And we don't believe that this is a sacramental ritual here in Cornerstone. Some suggest that this is medicinal, that oil was used at that time as a medicinal uh, means uh, where somebody was sick. But I think the better way of reading it, according to the rest of Scripture, seems to be that the use of oil is symbolically just raising a special concern for this person before the Lord and consecrating them for the work of the Holy Spirit. Oil can be used as suggested by James, but it certainly isn't a special ingredient required for healing to take place. And I want to be very clear what the, these verses are not this morning. A quick glance at verse 15 seems to indicate that the prayer of faith will always result in the sickness being physically healed, like some sort of cast-iron guarantee. But that's not so. And it can, it can be so harmful and it can be so damaging to believe that when we pray for those who are sick, there will always be physical healing when we pray. We know from experience that not everyone that we have prayed for is healed or healed in the way that we've asked. There have been times that we have gathered, this church and some of you have gathered late at night in bleak, bleak circumstances to pray for those who are clinging on to life. And by the next morning, we've woke to hear the miraculous tale of, of how this person has just transformed. Things have turned around overnight. Praise God for that. The painful reality is as well that for some we haven't received the outcome that we've prayed for. And that's hard. That's so hard. That causes so many questions of us of God and of prayer. Do we not pray a good enough prayer? Is our faith not strong enough. If only it would sum it up a bit more faith, would things have been different. But from Scripture, we know that that's not the way the prayer works. Second Corinthians 11 sees Paul pray three times for the thorn in his flesh to be taken away from him. But it wasn't. And Paul instead received a word from the Lord to say, my grace is sufficient for you and the strength, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Was Paul's prayer useless? Was it faithless? Was it unanswered? No. Paul's prayer was answered, not in the way that he had asked, but he received the assurance of God for his strength and his grace and his presence in his suffering. 
Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. He says, Father, if you're willing to remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed. And Jesus prayed in full faith to the Father, yet his prayer was that the will of the Father would be done. And that's the key here, and that's the key to all our prayers. That's the key to praying in faith, that the will of the Father would be done. Tyndale writes that the faith exercised in prayer is faith in God who sovereignly accomplishes his will. When we pray, our faith includes this recognition of the overruling providential purposes of God. See, the prayer of faith isn't measured by the outcome that we have asked for and being exactly what, what happens, but the prayer of faith is about our faith in God's sovereign wisdom, his sovereign goodness, his mercy, his power, and his sovereign plan. And while we pray for the sick, and we should, while we pray for healing, and we should, and while we pray for the miraculous, and we should, understanding that God is the supreme healer, that he is the one who can heal in his will, but we come also understanding that when, when he chooses not to physically heal in every person, our faith trusts in God, whatever the outcome. And that's the wrestle sometimes that we have. And some of you know that wrestle all too well. When our theology of healing has to be set in the wider context of Scripture. Sickness and death are a result of sin entering into the world, into God's perfect creation. And from that day, physical death would become a part of all of our stories. Sickness would be part of all of our stories, and we can't escape it. Think even of the story of Lazarus. Lazarus died, and, and Jesus came, uh, and he raised him up again to life. And there must have been great joy and great celebration on that day as Jesus raised Lazarus to life. But what happened with Lazarus? Lazarus isn't here today. Lazarus one day again died, because death is a part of life in this broken world. This is the reality of where we are. We can't escape it. But when we pray in faith, we pray to a God who can heal, who may heal, who has the power to heal, but ultimately he is sovereign over all things. And we trust in his sovereign reign and rule. God is offering us something much more then as well than physical healing. And many scholars cite the word for save in verse 15 as having an eternal context to it, not merely an earthly one. And the one who prays in faith will be saved and the Lord will raise them up eternally. And in the, in the light of the gospel, we pray full faith in the power of God to raise us eternally and to resurrect, resurrect us. Though God may choose to heal our earthly sickness, though he may choose to, to restore us physically, ultimately this will be temporary on the earth. What John Hindley says is this, when we are sick, the greatest danger is not that we die, but that we abandon Christ in our suffering. The example James shows us of one of faith where when we are sick, we call for others to pray. We may pray, call for the elders sometimes. We may pray for call for others to pray with us in faith. In faith, we expect that God can and that he may heal us. And we hold the confidence that he will ultimately and eternally raise us up one day in glory with him when we're in Christ. Praise God for the hope and the confidence that we have in him to do that for us. 
That's a prayer for the sick. Then he goes on to say, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. What James is saying is that the life of faith is lived out in confession and in prayer. We all probably know that we are to confess our sins to God because our sin is against God. We have sinful desires that James has talked about in this book that rage within us, that war within us. We have sins that we can continue to meet, uh, to, 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 to commit as believers. But when we've been convicted of sin, we, we trust in the gospel, we trust in Jesus, and when we were convicted of that sin, we bring it before God. When we fall short, when we sin, and we, we confess that to God, and we will be forgiven. Praise God. But James is also calling us to the practice of confessing our sin to one another. This could be those who we've sinned against. Maybe we need to go to them and say, listen, I've sinned against you. I've sinned in this way. I want to confess that and we want to ask for your forgiveness. Maybe it's confessing to others that there's sin in your life that you're struggling with and you want them to pray with you and support you and help you walk through it as you seek to flee from it and turn from it. And this is a good and healthy practice in the life of faith. And I wonder how we're doing with this. How are we doing in Cornerstone Church with this? Confessing our sin to one another. I ask myself this just as much as anyone else because this is what faith looks like in the context of confession. It may be awkward. It may be embarrassing. It may feel that we're losing control of the situation confessing this stuff to, to somebody else. But most importantly, when you find somebody that you can trust, you know you will walk with you and most importantly will pray with you as you seek to, to put this sin to death and to turn to Christ and find new desires in Christ. That is a vital thing in the walk of faith. We're all mostly in, maybe in connect groups and it's unlikely that we're going to confess her, her, her deepest, darkest secrets in a living room of 8 or 10 or 12 people. But perhaps you find one or two people who you trust who you can share with openly, who you can confess to, knowing it's not going to be spread around, but knowing that they will pray for you and support you. We all sin. None of us are on our own in this. We all sin. And the book of James has spoken about the passions that war within us, about us being enticed by our own desires. And, and this is true of all of us, bar none. Not one of us can last five minutes without sin pervading our thoughts or our deeds or our words. We all struggle with desires in certain areas, in different areas. But the life of faith understands that the danger of unconfessed sin is much more costly to us than bringing this into the light and confessing it to a brother and sister for them to to walk with us and to pray with us in. My encouragement is just as James says, to find someone, a brother or sister, that you can can confess, you, you can share openly with, you can be honest with, Someone who will pray for strength and power for you to overcome the desires that you may have and set new desires in Christ. Someone who will uphold you in prayer. And as we pray, the text says, as we pray and as we confess our sin, it leads to healing. Healing comes from confession of sin. There's a chance that this could be physical because you know the the physical stress it is to live a lie, to, to, to live a secret. And the toll that that can take on our physical health. But this is ultimately spiritually healing. Habitual sin, whether it's prideful attitudes, whether it's porn addictions, whether it's gambling addictions, whether it's anger in our life, will have a destructive impact on our lives and a destructive impact 
on our walk with God. And sin is like a, a festering boil. We can put a bandage over it just to cover it so people don't see it, but ultimately that won't heal it. Or we can bring it into light where we can, we can treat it, the underlying infection, deal with that, then it might be healed. But confession brings healing to us. A life of faith is lived in confession and prayer. And James goes on to, to talk about the power of prayer in all of these areas, the power of prayer he talks about in verse 16. And what he says is the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And he cites Elijah as an example. Now, we don't have enough time to, to go into the whole life of Elijah and what he'd done. Uh, you can read for, that, uh, read for yourselves in First, First Kings uh, on the life of Elijah. But he was one of the heroes of the faith. He was a great uh, prayer warrior. He saw some truly miraculous things happen as he prayed. What uh, James describes him here is a, a, as a man with a nature like ours. He was a righteous man, yes, but he was also a man who experienced fears and worries and weariness and being weighed down. But he was ultimately he was a righteous man. And just as Elijah was a, a righteous man in the gospel and in Jesus, just as Steph prayed earlier, we are made righteous in Jesus. When we trust in Jesus, we don't simply have our sins forgiven, but we also are made righteous in Jesus. And there's the same power in the prayers that we pray, the righteous prayers that we pray, as the, pray the prayers of Elijah. Elijah, uh, we're told in, in James, uh, prayed for three and a half years that the rain would stop. And this wasn't just some sort of personal whim that he had. It wasn't like us praying that when we see Barabest, telling us it's going to bucket for the next uh, two weeks, and it's coming up the summertime. We want to be good weather. It's not, it's not about that. It was, what it is, it's a righteous prayer. Because what this was, this is a righteous prayer to usher in God's righteous judgment on his people who become double-minded, who become sick, who become turning uh, to other gods, to false gods. And the purpose was to call the people back to God. Elijah's prayer wasn't answered necessarily because of the fervency of his prayer, because, but because he was a righteous man praying in the will of God to judge the nation of Israel for their wickedness and to draw them back to God that they might avoid a greater judgment. And James is calling us as righteous people to pray with the same power that Elijah prayed with. Righteous people praying righteous prayers to a righteous God have great power. And that is the power that's available to us in prayer. So James has been saying to us that in this passage that we can't do this alone. We need to depend on God. We need to pray as we move towards a close, he's also telling us that there's something else available to us as we make our way through this Christian life of faith. And that's the church. James is making a point throughout to show us that we can't live our faith out alone. We aren't designed to try to be single, isolated Christians just on our own trying to make our way through life. We're saved into a family. We're saved into a body. And, and don't be tempted to think that you can make it by yourself and that you don't need to be part of a local church. The community of faith is a, is a beautiful thing. John quoted last week uh, from Spurgeon saying that the church, still as imperfect as it is, is the dearest place on earth. It's a place where the prayers of the suffering mix with the praise of the cheerful. 
where the sick are prayed over, the, the sinner is welcomed and finds freedom to confess their sins and be prayed for. There have been occasions when I've stood in this room and stood maybe at the back during worship, and I've just happened to catch tears flowing from someone who I know is going through the fire at that time. And they're just coming broken before God. And maybe beside them, right beside them, I see someone who's just beaming as they sing praise and just joyful gladness. I've seen those just standing as, as those who have prayed for healing in their lives and received it. Standing right next to those who have prayed for healing and not. I've seen sinners come and kneel in repentance and receive forgiveness and be free to a life of faith. And that's beautiful. This is a family of faith. And this family isn't perfect. We will fail one another. We will rub each other up the wrong way. We will get things wrong. It will be messy. But this is a family that's been given to us. James shows us that this family in action in these closing verses sees, shows us why we need this community. He says this as we come to a close. He says, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Folks, we're called to live in community. We've been given a community of faith to live in. James has said, among you, among you, among you, all through this passage, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you sick? Anybody among you sinning? He called us to live among one another, as the text says. And where we know one another, where we, we can be in prayer for one another, where, where we can be up close to each other, to see where someone is wandering. How are we going to tell if somebody's wandering off if we're not connected to one another? How are we going to see if somebody's discouraged, somebody's on the verge of just packing it all in if we're not connected and among one another? See, the church is a family where we pursue one another. We seek one another out. We, we seek out the ones who are wandering. We bring them back to Jesus, not by our own saving, but to the one who will save them. Where we know the dangers, we know the consequences, and driven by love for one another, we will pursue and care for and walk with those who would otherwise wander off. I think there's some beautiful similarities in this to the parable of the lost sheep. How is the church, how in Cornerstone are we doing with this? As a church, do we love one another enough to care for one another's souls, to care for their walk with God, to, to recognize the truth and call brothers and sisters back to it? Because look at the significance of this if we do. James says that their souls are saved from death. These are the stakes, and they couldn't be any higher. The church is far more than any social club or sports club or, or community group. No, as good as those things are, what sets the church apart is the one who has laid down his life in our place, who's taken the punishment and paid the penalty for our sin, who offers us life instead of death. And it's by his blood that covers a multitude of sin. See, the church fights for one another. The church pursues one another. The church brings the wanderer back. We are absolutely our brother's keeper. The community of faith continually lives to point one another to Jesus. And in Cornerstone today, do we love one another as a church family to do that for one another?
We've been given prayer. We've been given all the help we need in God to live the life of faith. We've been given brothers and sisters to, to help us on our journey as well. As we close this series, as we come to a finish here, folks, I pray that we, we would strive for a faith that works. That we would strive for a faith that recognizes our faults, our feelings, our flaws, our sin, the ways that we fall short, and then we turn to God for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. I pray that we would seek a faith that recognizes that we seek wisdom sometimes in the wrong places and that we would ask God for his wisdom. I pray that we would know a faith that is as true in the suffering as it is in the cheerfulness. A faith that prays to God for healing and sickness but trusts God's sovereign goodness and his plan more than anything. We would seek a faith that displays evidence of, of Jesus through our thoughts and our words and our actions to the world around us. A faith that readily confesses our sin to God and to one another. And a faith that prays. And may we each call one another onwards towards Jesus. In all of this, in all of life, call one another towards Jesus. Point one another to Jesus in all things for God's glory and for our good. Let's ask God for a faith that works. And that those works would ultimately point others to faith. Not just to faith, but to Jesus. A faith that works. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, just so thankful to be in your presence, we are so thankful that you are with us at all times, that circumstances don't change how you feel about us and how you care about us and how you love us. We're so thankful for your unchanging, unwavering love and grace upon our lives. And Lord, we need your help to live this life of faith. Lord, will there be times when we ask you for faith and you will give us faith but help us to ask help us to ask for wisdom help us to ask for forgiveness help us to ask for boldness help us to ask for strength Lord in all things may we know and come before you Lord knowing that you are the giver of all good things and you withhold no good thing from us Lord I pray for us as a church that you would just instill faith in us more and more and that our actions would reflect our faith and not just our faith but our actions would reflect the God who we have faith in the God who is good the good the God who is kind the God who is merciful the God who has given up everything for us the God who is all-powerful who is sovereign in all things or give us faith Give us trust in you and help us live out lives that reflect that to the world around us for your glory, God, and for our good. All in your name, Jesus. Amen.